Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's season two of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Greg Koch. We're having a lot of fun. Got a bunch of great guests lined up. We're talking about guitars. Sometimes we talk about food. Sometimes we talk about aliens. It doesn't matter. We're just having a good old time. We're chewing the gristle for pity's sake. You know, and gristle is where fat meets flavor. We're gonna have fun today, ladies and gentlemen. A good friend of mine, Andy Alador, is in the house. Andy is not only a best-selling author at this point, glorious guitar player, both fronting his own band and is a member of the Dickie Betts Band, and one of the preeminent guitar instructors of all time with his association with Guitar World Magazine. So strap in, let's let the good times roll. Andy Alador. Ladies and gentlemen, Andy Alador is our special guest today. I must tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that we did have a delicious interview that we did about a week ago, but unfortunately, due to the forces of evil, meaning technical fubar, fubarship, we've had to recut it again. But it's going to be fun because Andy and I could probably talk for um, hours and hours and hours, and we will once again, at least for another hour. And, of course, Andy is, among other things, currently a... Uh, a co-author of a best-selling book, um, um, Stevie Ray Vaughan, and of course is a guitar-slinging madman, has been affiliated, kind of the potentate of all things guitar instructional for our friends over at Guitar World Magazine, a member of the Dickie Betts Band, uh, a member of his own band, a, a, a frequent collaborator in the Experience Hendrix uh, enterprise with the uh, Experience Hendrix Tours. And um, and just a great cat, and, and just stories galore. And right before we went on on um, on camera, if you will, or we were on camera, but before we started to record, uh, he had a couple of different Hendrixian artifacts that he pulled out of his closet. And uh, let's just start there, Andy. That's just good, clean fun. Am I right? Yes. So good morning, Greg and good Paul. Morning. Great to see you guys. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Um, please feel free to erase this one too, you know, um, <laughs> and we'll do I it was, again. I was going to divulge nuclear codes and some stuff like that and everybody's parlor account, uh, and license plate. There you go. <laughs> I have a list of no fly zone people right here. <laughs> it, it looks more like music, but it's yes. actually no fly zone. No, um, Greg, great to see you. Likewise. Uh, uh, you know, just to your listeners and viewers out there, uh, I love Greg. He knows I've divulged my affection for him uh, uh, far too many times. And um, I think we first met in 94 or something like that. I went out to Milwaukee to do an instructional video and he was finishing up one. And then we think it was 2005. Summer, it's not summer stage, summer fest. Uh, summer fest, right. Summer fest. Um, and that is in Milwaukee? It is. Yes. And so I played... This incredible extravaganza where, like, I think Journey was there, and there, like, there were some big bands there. Um, and um, so Greg was there with his young son, Dylan, at the time, uh, and me, Spratt, if that's a word, and um, <laughs> who's gone on to become a monstrous drummer. So anyhow, it's always great to see you, Greg. You know, we've we've got the chance to hang out and talk so uh, infrequently over the years. And... Um, but always inspiring with your, you know, uh, your daily videos and all that stuff. It's great. Kicking everybody's ass every day, especially oh. mine. So uh, great to see you. Likewise. And, um, what was the question? <laughs> 
we could start anywhere. But right before we went on, you had those. Oh yes, those, those glorious Hendrixian trinkets. Okay, yeah, let's start there, and I'll show them. We could pretend this is like an old radio serial. You know? Right, so you'll have to use those yeah. uh, verbal skills in order like, to paint the picture. Can you hear this? Exactly. You know, <laughs> um, you know, it's like a Nick Danger video. So what I, what I was just that crinkling sound that you all heard and saw, the sound that you saw, was the sound of this green electric green scarf, formerly owned by and stolen from. I must admit, Jimi Hendrix. Because a woman that I was in a band with um, in 1980, Lori Bogan, incredibly talented woman, um, she was making her first, she was probably 20 years old, making her first record for Buddha or Kama Sutra in 1970. And she was recording in Electric Ladyland and Jimmy was in the next room and she just couldn't help herself and went in and his guitar case was open and saw two scars and she stole one and she gave it to me. So that's kind of crazy with that is. And then... In this other bag is a sky blue curly cord patch cable that has one, you know, right angle end on it. I'm hang I'm holding this up in the air for those of you who are listening, because you can't hear that part. You can kinda of hear it going. And, and um anyhow, this particular patch cord allegedly is the one that's wrapped around Hendrix's neck at the end of Monterey after he finishes burning and smashing his guitar and you see him throwing the pieces in the audience. And it's, you know, aside from every aspect of that, like how mind-blowingly cool it was, the fact that the cord just haphazardly ended up wrapped around his neck, you know, right. while he, like, like made it even more like, what the hell am I watching? You right. know, like the first time I saw it, you're like, what was that? Yeah. And he's this is like the great he's just smiling his whole vibe that monterey show chewing gum you know right uh where he goes um you know dig uh you know didn't even rain no buttons to push you know i'd like to bore you for six or seven minutes now uh with a song right. by uh bob dylan that's his grandmother over there right right <laughs> that was his nickname for noel redding and Anyhow, there's a letter that this patch cord comes with from Eric Barrett, who was Jimi Hendrix's road manager at the time. At the, uh, actually, I don't think he was then, but I know he was his road manager in 1970. Right. And the letter says, this is the patch cable that Jimi Hendrix used at Monterey. So I take all these things with a grain of salt, but, you know, it's pretty vibey, I must yes. say. Yes. And you know I used it. Because I had to see if it worked. Right. And so anyway, so yeah. Now, sp speaking of Monterey, uh, this past well, last time we were able to go on the road, um, we were out in California in January of last year, which is you know a year already. Um, and we did a after Nam, we did a little tour. We went up to um, Northern California and then zooped our way down again to Los Angeles. Went through Arizona and then went back home again. But on our way up. We were playing uh, just north of San Francisco, and, um, and we had a little time. We had a travel day, and as we were going up, we took the Pacific Coast Highway, and I was like, we need to go to Monterey just to, oh, yeah. to, to check it out. And Because like, I didn't know if that place still existed or what the deal was. I just, in my mind, thought, well, we're going to go past Monterey. We might as well go. So make a long story short, I looked on you know my phone. I was like, yeah, it's open until 
you know, 5 p.m. that you can get in there or something like that. And we were going to get there just scant moments before 5. So I'm hauling ass. And now it's kind of rush hour in Monterey, which is kind of unpleasant. And we got off the freeway and, like, took a right off the street. And and there it was. We parked. There was no one around. You know, we walked right in. And you're, and you're looking around and you're seeing all the kind of backstage area footage stuff, you know, where Brian Jones is walking with Jimmy and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you're like, wow, this is the spot. And then there's stairs going to the stage and we go up the stairs and all of us, and there's no one around. And I, the door was open. I walk on the stage and there's this kind of clear coated spot where there's like some burn marks and it's, and someone had written Hendrix. Now I, again, take it out of here. Really? Oh. No, I'm serious, and because and, I had heard that that existed before. I think J.D. Simo told me that he had he had played there, and that 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 was a thing. So I look now again. I have no idea if that's real or someone did it after the fact. But anyway, you're standing on that stage and you're looking out and you see that roof and the whole nine yards, and it doesn't really it doesn't look as wow. massive as it does on the on the movie. Yeah. Uh, but it you talk about a a vibe. It was crazy. Uh, that had to be amazing. I, I've never had that chance. I have so many, I think I did this last time I held the laptop and spun it around so you guys could see, you can see now a little bit, all the, the what you're seeing are mostly CDs and magazines, but there are racks and racks and racks of cassettes and boxes. And without exaggerating, I have something like 200 Hendrix bootleg um, recordings that go back. And I was, buying bootleg, you know, Hendrix recordings on vinyl when I was 15 uh, in 1971. You know, we'd go to the little record shops in New York City. But anyway, I have one cassette, and it's the soundboard from Monterey, and it continues after the show is done. Like, the tape just is still rolling. And you hear, like, noises and people, you know, muttering and stuff. And, and you know, they're obviously moving stuff around the stage, and then this kid is like, hey, let me have that, you know, that can of lighter fluid. And then somebody goes, get out of here, kid, and like whatever. And this other guy goes, come on, man, just give him the give him the lighter fluid, you know? Like, what do you care? Just give him the can of lighter fluid. <laughs> and it was the moment when some kid who was in the first row saw Hendrix, you know, squirt that right. Ronson lighter fluid on his guitar and burn it and throw the can on the ground. That kid was standing there and then it's over and the can's just sitting there. Like how did the guy, it's so, such a cool moment. And so I have the soundtrack to that. Awesome. And he's going, come on, can you just give me the can? You know, like you can have the can of lighter fluid. And then finally this other guy was like, just give him the can, man. Like give it to him. What do you care? Just give it to him. <laughs> and you know, that person still has it. They, I hope they do, man. Like that is, I've never seen that though. You know, it's funny because um, certain artifacts, you know, from uh, important historical moments appear in museum shows or whatever it might be. That's one that I've never seen surface. You know, this is the bent lighter fluid can. I knew a girl who had, I really felt bad for her. She was at a Who show. This was in like 69 or 70 because the time i'm describing happened in 70 or 71 but i think it was i was 14 or 15 and she had hanging on her wall these guitar strings attached to a bridge like it was sort of weird and she told me she was at a who show and pete smashed his guitar threw it in the audience and 
she and another guy caught the neck at the same time. <laughs> now, you know, you would think the chivalrous thing would have been to let her have the guitar neck. Right, but no. Chivalry is dead. Right. It, it, or it was then. And so the the compromise was he said, well, I'm keeping the neck, but you get you can have the strings and the bridge, which isn't so bad. And so that was how you, you'd see it on a roll. You go like, that's so odd. It would be the six strings, like just in the air, being held down by this weight, which was the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's pretty cool, too. I wonder when... That must have been early on, because I don't think he was smashing stuff later on. Well, dude, this was, I'm talking 70, 71, when she had this. Oh, okay, got so, it. Yeah, yeah, And, you know, she was a kid, so it wasn't like she went to England, you know, like that. It right. had to be like a show in New York. And it also reminds me of something else. Somebody I know, I don't know who it was. Um, you know about the famous Murray the K shows, right. the Fox Theater shows? Right. Um and I remember the commercials on TV. Now, for those who have no idea what I'm talking about, Murray the K was a very successful, famous DJ in New York, uh, Murray Kaufman, and who, as soon as the Beatles happened, dubbed himself the fifth Beatle. And, but he had the Beatles on, he played Beatles music like crazy. And, but before the Beatles even, um, he was doing these Fox Theater uh, variety shows with Joe Tex and the Shirelles and, you know, this crazy mixed bag of, you know, R&B and soul, which, you know, is as a review, is some, you know, as a concept, is something that goes back and I guess exploded with Alan Freed and rock and roll and, you know, all that stuff. And so, right. but in 1966, I believe, unless it was early 67, one of those, the two of the bands that were on the Murray the K show with Joe Tex and the Shirelles and people like that, Jackie Wilson, were the Who and Cream. Right. <laughs> and I remember being a kid seeing the commercial and they'd be naming all of these people that are going to be like, oh, you have to come to the Murray the K extravaganza rock and roll show. And they'd show like kids running through the street and stuff. It was just dumb black and white commercial. And then like people holding signs like with the names of the bands and it was going by like that. And I'll never forget, like, somebody pops out from behind, like, a lamppost, and it says The Who. And then right. they cut it, so, like, the same person, like, was, like, laughing, you know, like, comes out the other side with the same sign, and it says Cream. You know? oh. And so the stories, if you've read them, from The Who and Cream talking about, like, being locked in a room. Right. And I think Eric said, like, we went from three songs to two songs to one song. Right. You know, because it was too long. Right. And the Who, same thing. And um, Keith Moon talking about, you know, that they would break out because they were British, like their sort of, um, you know, irreverence for everything, you know, was stoked that much further. So it's like we're locking you at punk kids in a room. So when you're supposed to go back on in you're there. one hour, you'll be there. And they were like, you know, climbing out the window and stuff. And, <laughs> but all, what all this is leading to is the Who were lucky enough <laughs> to book a side gig while they're in New York then when they're like still an unknown band playing someone's bar mitzvah. <laughs> Not kidding. I know a guy that went. And he was like, you know, a little older than me. So I was like 11 then. And 
So he was 13 in, in Great Neck, which is his affluent suburb, and at the Squire Movie Theater, and the entertainment was The Who. <laughs> and he said no one listened. You know, it's like a typical, like, bar mitzvah party, uh-huh. like punk kids, you know. But it was The Who. But it was The Who. Like uh-huh. The Who played my bar mitzvah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know who played, I think I have this correct, this is a great trivia question. Who played Steve Miller's bar mitzvah? Uh, Les Paul, probably. No, but that's a good guess. But he was in Dallas uh, then, Steve Miller. Ah. Uh, that's uh, my tip off. That's my hint. Uh, Freddie King. This is a good guess. T-Bone Walker. Oh. Because wow. he took lessons from T-Bone when he was 13. That's crazy. Yeah, man. <laughs> that is crazed. Yeah. I I, I think that, uh, I mean, Steve, I love Steve Miller, but I mean, taking lessons from uh, T-Bone Walker and having him play your bar mitzvah, that is like the most amazing thing ever. Anyway, <laughs> what do you want to talk about, Greg? Well, we can go any direction we want. You know, we kind of started on the Hendrix frontier. It would be, I'm fascinated just to find out how, um, well, any different things about, about Hendrix. I mean, I have, uh, you know, we've talked about the fact that that was the main reason I, I wanted to play guitar. And, um, you know, and it's it's one of those things where after all of these years, I still learn stuff from from Jim. Like the other day I was messing around and I, because I was never, uh, I was never fascinated with learning every little nuance of a tune. You know, you know how it is. You, you listen to part of it and, and you go, well, that's cool. I want to take that part there and so on and so forth. But I was playing along with, um, when I was a kid, we had the vinyl of my brother, I should say, had the vinyl of a record that was called uh, rock, great rock festivals of the seventies. And it was kind of a compilation of Isle of Wight, and um, and Atlanta Pop Festival, uh-huh. and and there was just a few tunes from the Isle of Wight that were on there. One was this slow blues uh, Midnight Lightning, which is hard to find because it's it, it was it was not really in most of the different stuff you saw from the Isle of Wight, but now it's kind of available again. Right. Uh, but there are some cool things that he does in there, and he did this one little slide up, hammer on, pull off thing. I was like, well, that's cool. I'm taking that. So Jimmy remains to me, even though, you know, you figure he was 27 when he died. Uh, so, you know, I'm like, you know, <laughs> I'm 54 now, so I'm way his elder. Been playing for a period of time and have, you know, learned a bunch of different other stuff and so on and so forth. But yet his approach as a artist and as a guitar player um, still has such weight. And what's interesting, too, is, you know, you you wonder... You know, you you're, you self adjudicate kind of thing, and well, is this stuff really all that good, or was I just so bewitched <laughs> as a youngster that I just can't let it go? And it's like, no, for for you know, there's a lot of different things which we can point to in today's society where people are bewitched, which we won't talk about. But um, there's Elizabeth Montgomery. <laughs> I love her. Her son's a great guitar player, or a great guitar maker, as a matter of fact. Really? Yeah, yeah, Asher Guitars. And, you know, what's his name? Uh, Ilya Kuryakin from The Man from Uncle. Um, what's his real name? His son plays guitar with um, Jackson Brown. That's crazy. But anyways, uh, getting getting back to it. So, Sorry. 
your experience of 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 Jim, just your thoughts on why you got into it, your involvement with it, and why there's just I mean, we know why there's such lasting import, but just the your Jimmy the Jimmy thing. Yes. All is, that things, what is that what you're trying to say? All things Jim. Oh man. Whew. Oh God. It was exhaustive. Um anyway. It is. Um <laughs> Well, the first thing is at some point, uh, because I was a Hendrix fanatic and I'll describe that in a moment but years and years later just like you're saying it dawned on me i was like you know i picked the right guy right or it was like he picked me really you know like who picked who who knows you know but um because he like all these great artists is going to remain endlessly fascinating forever because something's going on there Every time he pl- played the guitar and all the recordings we hear in the in the movies that we see, that you know, just in my opinion, is the same as what got captured in the Charlie Parker records and right. uh, Miles Davis records. You know, these guys, you're hearing life, you know, being lived and breathed in that moment. Um, sounds heavy, but it's true, you know. Um, there's a, you know, my son is an aspiring cinematographer, Wyatt. And so we talk about movies a lot. And I asked him if he had seen a movie called New York Stories, if you guys are familiar or not. It's really three sort of vignettes and the directors, three different directors, um, Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese and Woody Allen. And so they each did like a 40, 40, 45 minute thing. And then they put them together and called it New York stories. And the Scorsese one, because, you know, we all know Scorsese is incredible when it comes to music, right? You know, like the soundtracks, like sitting here today, I, you know, feel confident saying that, you know, Martin Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino may be two of the best ever directors, you know, for their use of music and contemporary music and and, the way music is such a part of the movie and the feeling, you know, once upon a time in Hollywood is, it's unbelievable to me, but, you know, but anyway, so the Scorsese part vignette in New York stories, Nick Nolte's this abstract expressionist painter who makes these gigantic paintings. So there's one scene where you see him painting. I mean, it's like, maybe it's like 20 seconds. What's he listening to? Live Korean volume one. Right. Like super loud. And it was just like, it can't, comes on. And I'm like, I can relate. <laughs> right. Exactly. So that power, um, and, and this is another thing I think. I think that the reason why, whether we're talking about bebop uh, or we're talking about Hendrix and Cream and all this great music, um, I think that the excitement of the musicians themselves, knowing that, like, they're sort of creating something new, like these new sounds. Right. And that excitement that it's creating in themselves in the moment of recording it is captured and is part of the what gets communicated like when i listen to manic depression 
I feel like I'm hearing three guys that can't fucking believe what's coming out. Right. Like they're like, this is the fucking shit. Right. And, you know, and Ginger would say it, you know, Ginger Baker, you know, uh, in his um, in his way, you know, in the cream documentaries, he'd say, look, we knew who we were. We knew what we could do. We walked out there every night and our attitude was cop this motherfuckers. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so that's, I don't know. Like when you watch uh, Muhammad Ali, you know, you watch, uh, I always make sports analogies, you know, the excitement of a moment, you know, it can't be denied. Right. right. And so, you know, uh, just personally in a nutshell, uh, you know, my mom is a musician. She was a singer and a part-time actress. We had a piano in the house. She bought an acoustic guitar before I was born because she was playing a little guitar. And so the topic that's often discussed among guitarists, you know, what was your first guitar? In my case, the guitar was already there. Guitar beat me to the house. Right. And so I remember... Uh, being like two years old and discovering, you know, I'd open the guitar case and it was just this fantastical contraption to me, the guitar, you know, I would pick the strings and listen to the song. Like I couldn't believe it was something so amazing about this thing right? that was in this little box and you'd open it up and then you'd pick a string. And I mean, it's going to sound so corny, but I remember this like being two or three years old. And I was picking a string and I started picking it very lightly and slowly. Like, let's say it's like the low E string or the high E string. And then I started picking it a little harder, louder, and a little faster. And I remember this very well. In my mind, it was like a guy on a horse, like riding into town. And as he got closer, the sound got louder, you know, and the pace got quicker. Right. And then I'd pick lighter and more slowly. And that was him riding off. <laughs> and that's my first memory of like the guitar, you know, which is really cool because it's just dynamics, right? It's just about, right. you know, finger on a string and a sound and the vibration. Like it's all, it's, it's pretty amazing, really, as dumb as that sounds. It's sort of amazing, like, what happens with a guitar. Yes. It's, like, ridiculous. <laughs> and every day that we pick it up and we go, what is this thing? Like, what, you know, like I said right. to you in, in our aborted or in the, our lost episode, you know, that I think you are very uh, attracted to spontaneity and the... Um, um, uh, you know, inherent musical uh, uh, sense of adventure or, you know, um, not knowing what's going to happen exactly. So it's this combination of, well, I have my shit together, but I don't know what's going to happen if I suddenly swing my elbow and bang the back of the neck as hard as I can while going down on the tremolo arm and switching, changing pickups. Like, I don't know what that's going to sound like. All I know is that right. I could do it. You know, the thing's like begging me to do it, right? <laughs> or like when Jeff Beck would push down on all the strings and in uh, ice cream cakes right. and the brakes. 
Yep. You know, so he pushes all the strings down and he's on the bridge pickup of his strat and he's going, blip, 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 blip. You know, like, what the fuck is that? Right. <laughs> it's like as good as anything else. So, anyhow, uh, Beatles showed up in uh, February 64 and that was, you know, everybody's life was changed from that moment and it was like, get a guitar. I got my Golden Beatles songbook that showed you how to play a B chord the way nobody wants to ever play a B chord. Right. You know exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. And, um, and and that was the beginning of looking at a transcription book, quote unquote, and going, this isn't right. Right. Which sort of led to this whole other thing of trying to do transcriptions correctly and figure these things out. You know what I mean? Right. Totally. Because the man is lying to us. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I, re I always tell the story about going in, you know, <clears throat> to a music store and, you know, back in 1979 or whatever it was when I started playing and wanting to get like a book of Hendrix songs. And the pictures were cool. You know, there would be all these cool pictures and they would be, you know, the Jimi Hendrix anthology. And it would just be like a lead sheet with, yeah. you know, the melody, the vocal melody written and then like some cowboy chords over the thing that, of course, he knew he never used ever. Uh, and so it was very much uh, um, a mystery. You know, it was all... Uh, well, didn't you, you also get angry? Because I was like, at some point I re realized that those were just like the chord frames that got taken out of a book. Right. You know, like it had nothing to do with anything. Right. And for me, that started with, you know, love the Beatles, love the Stones, you know, like... Um, there was a show on in New York called the Clay Cole show, this afternoon show that had bands. And then they had like, quote, like not really videos, you know, like they play a record, a big record. Like I remember 19th, they were playing 19th nervous breakdown to like a puppet show or something, you know, like they had a, they had a fill airtime somehow, but the Clay Cole show was the first show the Rolling Stones ever performed on uh, in America before it's all of them. And, um, Anyhow, uh, so it started from, you know, this sort of broader, I love this music and it's exciting to what's going on with that George Harrison guy, you know, like he seems to be playing more guitar than the other guys. Right. There's a little more guitar responsibility. I think I like that. That's interesting. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he's got this a specific job within the... <laughs> Right. <laughs> I'm interested in that job. Right. Guitar player. But, you know, my mom had like Chet Atkins records and Lead Belly records and Josh White records and um, Sonny Terry and Brian McGee, you know. So, like, it was in there somewhere. Right. I But I remember being very young and hearing Chet Atkins and I was like, this is like, I couldn't believe that you could even do it. Right. I mean, I'm sure you share that. Where you're like, you could do that. Like, this is a person doing this on a, right, right, like, right. This, this is crazy. How could this be? Which later, you know, you could say the same about Third Stone from the Sun or, uh, you know, Crossroads or, or whatever. Right. So, um, so anyhow, um, first day of seventh grade, I'm, I'm 11 years old, 1967. It's 8 a.m. I stop at my buddy's house so we can walk the, remaining two remaining two blocks to first day of junior high school together ronald purge and he um 
it's 8 a.m. And he's like, dude, you have to hear this record. It's the best music that ever existed. And he puts on a Purple Haze. Yeah. You know, he just got our experience. It was brand new. And he was just like, isn't this the best music you've ever heard? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> because it just sent, it sounded like the room was spinning. I mean, it still does. Like when you listen to the end, purple haze and the sped right. up guitars, you know. Which I think on Electric Ladyland, when Jimmy's talking about cellophane typewriters, right? I think that's what he meant, but I don't know because that those sped up guitars, a cellophane <laughs> typewriter might sound like that, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, and, and but cream was really the thing. I was a cream fanatic, and so you know maybe we talked about this last time. The arguments were those days were well, who's the best guitar player of all? And some people would be like, no, it's Clapton. You know, what are you nuts? Like it's Clapton. And other people would be, oh, what are you, you're like you're crazy. It's Hendrix. You know, <laughs> and guitar fight. Yeah, and I was on the in the Clapton camp. You know, just because Cream came along first for me. Sure. But then I'll never forget, I was at summer camp and Electric Ladyland had come out and it was like dusk and I was for some reason by myself in the bunk and we had a little record player and some kid had Electric Ladyland and Gypsy Eyes came on and Greg, I just put the needle back. I listened to Gypsy Eyes like 10 times in a row. I'm 11 years old. And yeah, I've had 11 or 12. And, man, I, like, astral projected it. It's like something happened, you know. Like, I mean, I was never the same after that. Something happened listening to Gypsy Eyes on repeat. Right. <laughs> and I've never recovered from that. <laughs> we interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, Makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. So when you started to learn that stuff, was it like you and vinyl against the world, or was there like a group of people around that were you were showing each other stuff and figuring oh, yeah. it out? Well, okay, so um, uh, before I really got into playing, um, I was much more in interested in art and always drew and did a lot of art. Going back to when I was a very little kid. and But when we get to this period we're talking about, like 67, 66, 67, my friends and, and friends that were a little bit older. In fact, I mentioned that Clay Cole show. There was a band around the corner from me, the Denims, like a local band, they were on Clay Call like numerous times. And then another friend of mine who unfortunately just passed away, this guy, Damien Kelly, was in a band called the Third Bardot. And if you don't know them, which I'd be shocked if you did, but you know, you know that Nuggets compilation that Lenny Kay put together, Nuggets, original artifacts of the first psychedelic era is the no, I have, I long name. Oh, man, you would love it. So Nuggets is like, I mean, I could look it up, but Nuggets is like, um, you know, psychotic reaction. And I had too much to dream last night, you know, electric prunes and um, 
uh, the Standells, Dirty Water, and, you know, garage band, what was considered psychedelic music, you know? Um, 96 Tears, Question Mark and the Mysterians, you know? Right. Um, and um, there's a lot of, like, really, really, I mean, what's his name? Ted Nugent was in the Amboy Dukes. They did Journey to the Center, Center of Your Mind. Center of Your Mind, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Um, and so, uh, I don't know, 25 years ago, they expanded the original Nuggets double album to a four-CD box set and included my buddy's band, ah. The Third Bardot. So everyone should listen to The Third Bardot I'm five years ahead of my time. They were signed to Atlantic. This came out in 66. And it sounds like, and it's really cool, if you took the birds and the animals and put them together. Like, what a weird, like, it had the 12-string psychedelic birds thing. Right. With this, like, guttural, angry Eric Burton thing. Ah. I'm five years ahead of my time. You know? <laughs> So, um, uh, so I had friends that played, you, you know, you were asking me about the people around me. I had friends that had bands and I would go see them, but I knew like two licks, you know? And then, um, a guy who I'm still really good friends with 71. I'll never forget this moment. We were just talking about the other day. I went over to his house. I didn't really know him, but he was a guitar player in high school. And he was like, Hey, just come over someday. And I went over and he had put his hair in like an Afro he, was, he looked exactly like Clapton on Disraeli Gears. And he had an SG, this is 1971, puts on Disraeli Gears and plays along and knows every riff. Ah. You know? And I was like, I know like a Mick Taylor lick. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like one. And, um, but I was still into art and I went to college at 16 years old and 73 and um i'm trying to compress my boring story but i'm 16 i'm in college i'm completely like this close to a nervous breakdown because i'm too young to be in college but there's a guy in the next room who's 22 and he's graduating from the hard school of music which is part of the university of hartford where i was and his name is tom mariano and he was like the genius uh keyboard player of the school and from the first day, like he would say, oh, come in my room. And he'd put Chick Corea, now he sings, now he sobs, like Matrix. Like he put that on and play, he had a Rhodes in his room. And he'd play along to it or he'd put on Bill Evans or Keith Jarrett. We would smoke so much pot, we'd be so stoned. <laughs> and he could play all this stuff. And he, it was just because he exuded, like the main, most important part of the story is he was like a guru of music, you know, like if you had music, like life was perfect. Right. And if I scroll back a tiny bit, my first guitar teacher was this guy, Joe Monk, who was a total Joe Pass chord melody guy who, when I was 11, was writing me chord melody charts for Darn That Dream and Here's That Rainy Day and stuff like that. And I just wanted to know the guitar solo and get back or something, you know. Right. But... You can go on Joe Monk, that's his name, JoeMonk.com, and there's a live record from like 1962. And he sounds just like Joe Pass. He was amazing. He had, I think, a 53 or 4, 175 with P90s into an Ampeg Gemini 2. 
Ooh. And dude, like what? There's no better Rick. And then he had the songless tape to the horn, you know, like 150 standards. And uh, so that was my first teacher. And he was hilarious. Like, like he was writing, he'd wrote, written me an arrangement of going out of my head. He was very funny. And I learned later that I actually learned a lot about teaching and how to communicate, you know, to by osmosis, just from the kind of teacher he was. You know, like we all have had teachers in our life, right? I'm sure the same's got to be true for you, Greg. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And without even being aware of it, they sort of stamp the, you know, circuit board in you of what teaching is, you know, because teaching is a lot of things. Right. You know, it's not just put your fingers over here and here's the how to play this chord and here's how to play this riff. It's definitely not just that. Right. So anyway, Joe Monk was writing me. He wrote the arrangement out of going out of my head. But when he wrote the word head, he thought the A looked like an R going out of my herd. <laughs> and he started laughing hysterically. Now I'm 11 and he's this older, you know, like total beatnik jazz guy with the stubble and everything. And he had like a jazz sweater on, if you know what that is. <laughs> yeah. And and he goes, this song is about a cow. And the cow's like, he's just feeling a little alienated from his other cow friends. <laughs> Going out of my herd. Like, that's what I grew up with. <laughs> you know. And so anyway, Tom Mariano, you know, he would say to me, um, he had all these instruments in his room, tiny room. He'd say, he had a stand-up bass, double bass. He said, Andy, play bass. And I'm like, just turning 17. No, I know nothing about jazz. And I was really just starting to get serious about guitar, like actually practicing. And he'd go, play stand-up bass. And I go, Tom, like, I, I don't know how. And we're very stoned, mind you. And, and he would say, I don't care, just play. And he would play to me. You know what I mean? Like, I would just be over there, like, banging stuff, and he would just be, like, creating, turning it into music. Wild. And so I wondered, and that was in 73, you know, for a few years I wondered, whatever happened to Tom Mariano? He was, like, the greatest musician I ever met, the greatest guy, brilliant musician. And in around 77, this guy started to play with Frank Zappa named Tommy Mars. Ah, uh, there he is. <laughs> And so I'm not putting the two together at all because Tommy Mars was thinner and didn't have a beard. Whereas Tom Mariano was heavier and had a beard. Right. So he's Tommy Mars. I'm going to, I'm going to dozens of Zappa shows seeing Tommy Mars. It's, I'm not picking up. I got nothing. Still walking around going, what happened to Tom Mariano? And one day I was lucky enough in 80 or 81, it was 81 to have tickets to a Frank show where I was in the second row, which was unusual. And Tom was standing at the side of the stage talking to someone. So it's Tommy Mars, right? I mean, I'm at a Frank Zappa show and there's Tommy Mars who had grown back his beard and gained some weight. And I'm looking at him and it just hit me that it was Tom Mariano. <laughs> and I was like, the whole rest of the show, I'm like, 
it's him. It's not him. It's him. Not him. And, you know, those Halloween Palladium shows, they would play two shows a night for three nights in a row, like six shows. So I went back the next day and wrote this ridiculous note and went around the stage entrance in the afternoon. Hi, I was in the next room eight years ago and my hair was long. My name's Andy. And he came out and uh, it was, sure enough, Tommy Morris, Tom Mariano, same person. Wild. And so... Uh, and I'll just add to this. I had the opportunity in 78 to take some guitar lessons from Pat Martino and which was an incredible experience. So, you know, I lumped these together because every one of these guys gave me the feeling that if you had music in your life, you really didn't need anything else. Like music had the power to basically give you everything, like your complete sustenance, total happiness, bliss, really, you know, like in this wonderfully, you know, vacuumous way, right? Like like there's nothing to do with eating food and having a job and (laughs) to pay the phone bill. Right. Who cares about that? That's not important. I'll tell you one more little thing. I had a 68 Tornado giant car in those days, 1978 driving around Manhattan. I'm coming back from a Pat Martino lesson. We also smoked a lot of pot. I was completely stoned in my car. I have my little fresh music because Pat would write everything out by hand for you and it's beautiful handwriting. And the music sitting on the seat next to me and I'm just in some blissful state. And I'm actually at the light in front of the Palladium in the the mid-afternoon on 14th Street. And this guy in a T-shirt Puerto Rican guy starts banging on the window. So I roll my window down and then he looks down, he sees the music. He goes, Oh man, you musician. I go, yeah. And he goes, then you don't want any two and alls. And I go, that's right. I don't. (laughs) And I rolled my window back up. (laughs) Anyway, All of this informed my desire when I started to transcribe and teach and do instructional videos and everything else, Um, you know, to, and you do this in all of your instructional stuff, Greg, which is great, you know, like, uh, music is this wonderful thing, you know, it isn't like going into the science lab and, you know, you have a beaker and, right. You know, and Benson, Bunsen burner, whatever it's called. You know, it's supposed to be fun. Yeah, it's supposed to be about expression, about about finding yourself. And um, I, you know, I think that that's something you know that you are great at because it's got to be fun. That was the other thing. It's like when I did my Hendrix book. Uh, books, you know, came with the CDs like Jimi Hendrix Signature Licks, where I did my best to replicate the music or the DVDs. My feeling was, I want the music to sound like the music. So, like, when you're listening to it, you're getting what the music is supposed to give you. Like, even right. though it's within the context of an instruction. Right. Which is, I hate to say, lacking in a lot of instructional material. I know you feel exactly the same way. Yep. 
it's got to feel like music. Right. You know? And then you can roll it back and go, hey, kids, this is called a G7 chord. Right. Put your fingers like right. that. <laughs> you know. But you Indeed. already won them over with, you know, your dog and pony, your dog and pony show, like whatever. <laughs> you got to get the lifestyle. So I feel involved. lucky. That's the bottom line. Yes. So I feel lucky um, that uh, it's, yeah, it's the old showbiz thing, like, you know, never work with children or animals. That's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, I feel really lucky. I've had great teachers, you know, and, and that it's had everything to do with, um, you know, maybe you've heard this, a similar comment. Somebody, the best compliment I ever got on one of my videos, somebody wrote, you know, when I watch one of his videos, I get the feeling that, that he really wants me to learn this. Right. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. Like, I wouldn't even have thought of that, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in fact, that's why I'm doing this. And it's satisfying teaching folk. I mean, I, uh, you know, there is, there is a, a misguided notion uh, that if you're um, a successful teacher, that that is because uh, that it, it, you didn't have the goods to become uh, an entertainer of, of, of massive magnitude. And oh, well, there's, of course, there are, you know, numerous myths about music that are incorrect, but. Well, you know, uh, the expression, you know, those who can't do teach. Right, exactly. You know, but. Sorry, well, you were taking but, lessons from Pat Martino. So I guess that that is some horse shit. And then, of course, you know, we all know that you can play great and and uh, have have done all kinds of different things as a performing musician and so on and so forth. But there is that weird Stigma. And of course, I've always said, you know, those who can survive do. <laughs> <laughs> I like that a lot better. Well, you know what? So on my 1967 uh, Blackface Super Reverb, um, I have a sticker that I love. The Dude Abides. The Dude Abides. A, fr a friend of mine loved that movie so much. When the movie first came out, he made these bumper stickers. And so the movie's out. It's a brand new movie. And I see these two cars. I go to a party and I see these two cars parked next to each other. And they both have the dude abides bumper stickers. <laughs> and it's a brand new movie. And I walk in to the guy's house and I go, hey, whose cars? Who's got those dude abides like bumper stickers? And it was the two guys. Like it was just a, and they both looked at me and they went, oh, I like, do you know what it is? And I was like, <laughs> well, Yeah. It's like from a movie. <laughs> and then they were just excited that I knew that. And they're like, here, we made a whole bunch. Take some. So, yeah, the <laughs> dude to bots, you know, like whatever, you know, uh, uh, you know, philosophical way you want to, uh, however you want to interpret that, um, you know, you know, those who can't do. Right. Right. So, yeah. Um and I found that, especially with younger people, um, they need to be encouraged. Uh, everybody does, though, uh, regardless of age. Encouraged to not be afraid of failure, you know, because it's meaningless, um, the failure part. 
right. are not meaningless because you learn from it. It's it's meaningless in the sense of it shouldn't prevent you from trying, which it so often does. You know, um, uh, you know, David Bowie said art is one of the only places where you can crash your airplane and get up and walk away. You know, right, right. so you should try. You should be trying to crash it. Like, right. <laughs> you know, like all the time. And um, uh, so I've, that's been part of teaching either for kids or adults, too, which is you have to turn off all that other stuff that isn't helping you, you know, just like profess your love for music and the guitar and, you know, whatever it might be. And, um, you know, do your best to, I mean, we're human. Everybody has fears and doubts and insecurities. You know, you, you have to have those things. Um, it makes me think of Russ Conkle, the drummer, you know, yeah. legendary drummer, was in Mono, uh, Montreux when Steve Ray Vaughan played and nobody knew who he was. And Stevie's playing in the musician bar. This is when Jackson Brown discovered him. Right. And what Russ said, and it's in the Stevie book. I don't know if we want to talk about the Stevie Ray Vaughan book for a minute, but um, uh, I wrote a biography of Stevie Ray Vaughan with my friend Alan Paul called Texas Flood Inside Story of Stevie Ray Vaughan. And, um, and Russ said something that was really great. He said, seeing Stevie then, he said, if you just looked at him, he looked so vulnerable. Like he looked like somebody that was actually kind of scared and fragile but what was coming out was like the guns of navarone right exactly and he said it was this crazy combination of like here's this guy who looks so vulnerable and delicate who's crushing you right you know and he just said it was like a beautiful thing like it's something so honest about that vulnerability you know what i mean right as opposed to something else you know it was like a door in to a connection to be made so anyhow um well i know we talked about this last time when we were on our uh now in the ether interview from last week that got destroyed by the powers of Technical skullduggery. But um, I remember the, uh, you know, first hearing Steve Ray Vaughn. And, uh, ooh, the phone's ringing. Hello. I'm going to do this. There you go. Um, you know, I, I was, in, in my area, you know, because I had older brothers and sisters, and my room with my brother, there were five girls in between, he's 14 years old. So I was into all this music and was into Hendrix and into Clapton. And had started to listen to that stuff and would always, I was very, you know, I remember reading that first biography. I think Chris Welch wrote that biography of Hendrix. Yeah. You know, and I had that book when I was like in third grade, you know, and I would, but you know, you're reading these books and you hear these names of Albert King, B.B. King, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, you know, Otis Rush, Buddy Guy, all these people. Um, so you start doing some research and, but you know, because I was born in 66, by all intents and purposes, I should have been like all my peers most of which were 
ironically, at that point, the oldest in their family. So they were more into the music of the day. So they were more into either, you know, Van Halen, you know, into that kind of, um, you know, pre-shred, shred mentality, or else they were like into, you know, Rush, or REO, how about REO? REO, exactly, or whatever the various different things was were, and and I was not, and I and I would listen to it was kind of weird, like my you know people I looked up to that were kind of the first generation, you know, people that were listening to the old blue stuff and influenced by. I was listening to the old radio station. You know, there was a public radio station uh, in Milwaukee that would play Portraits in Blue every night at ten o'clock, and I would record them on my old Bob Porter recorder, Bob Porter show. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Bob Porter's show is like a like an institution. And I would Porter's record blue, these. Unbelievable. And you told me last time, you like, you have a brother who's like 10 years older than you, right? Yeah, 14 years old, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, I mean. But I would listen to, like, Albert King, and, and I, I just really, there was something about Albert King's playing uh, that just hit me so bad, and I wanted to add that into my arsenal so much. And I was I was working on it. I was getting it, and I and I liked you know I was playing a Telecaster on the neck pickup because I loved that kind of clean yeah you know or, or talking about was we did about the Hendrix thing about listening to the old BBC stuff which was a bootleg at the time. I mean that was like way under the radar. Listening to things like Hendrix playing Driving uh, South, you were Driving talking. South, or on Hendrix in the West, you know his versions of you know Little Wing and that seminal version of live red house where he's doing more cleaner stuff best red, the best red house ever exactly so these are the things that are in my wheelhouse and i'm thinking no one else around me that i know of is into this stuff so i think i've got the inside track on revitalizing this music that has long been forgotten by people my age and so on and so forth and then this david bowie record comes out and i hear this guy playing albert king looks i'm like who is doing that it's got to be albert isn't it no it's who is this? So I find out that it's this guy. You know, first I get this article in Guitar Player magazine. There's a picture of Niles Ro- Nile Rogers with a Strat talking about working on the David Bowie record. Well, that's got to be the guy. He's got a Strat. He's the producer. And then I read a little further, and they talk about this guy, Steve Ray Vaughn. And, of course, at the time, I didn't know anybody named Vaughn. I'm just stupid. Kevin. It's Vaughan. So, so I remember I went into the local Peaches record shop. And I went out. I'm looking for a record by Steve Ray Vaughan called Texas Flood. And I remember getting that record, and it was on a Saturday, and me and my reprobate buddy from across the street, who was also a guitar player, you know, we got some beer somewhere, and we had a few beers, and we're listening to this record, and my mind is blown, because I figure (laughs) everything I thought I had the inside track on, every little nuance, every little weird, you know, bluesy turn of phrase, and then a bunch more that I had no concept of, this dude was doing. And and the tone, and the whole night. I remember I, I came home, and I played the record for my parents. And I, I was like, this is what I wanted. This is what I've been talking about. This guy has, like, packaged it all in one fell swoop. And it was so devastating that I, after I switched to, like, a 335 not too long after, I was like, well, the Fender sound has just been redefined and codified by this cat. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm going over here. You know, I'm, I'm going elsewhere. Um, but it was just so such a pummeling uh and you know and it was here because then the next record came out and and for some reason for me you know of course you know as a dysfunctional youngster you know once he started doing the hendrix covers it turned me off in a way because i was like yeah. you know what don't do jimmy you know it, but i understood why and he, of course he did it so well but for some reason that kind of turned me off sure you know what i mean in, in well, my yeah. work 
because I thought that's sacred territory. You're your own dude. Why do you? Why did you do it? But of course, you know, I understand in, in hindsight, and certainly his versions are unbelievable and glorious. Um, but talk about how you're, you know, you're a few years older than me, bless, bless you, but nothing wrong with it. Two hundred uh, years. Two hundred <laughs> years old, yes. So how was it for you when you when you heard Stevie Ray being into that music? Well, um, you know, the, I told the story. I was at my mom's house and helping her with something, and there was, she had radio on, and it was just in the background, and and it was, you know, popular music, and and I really wasn't paying attention at all. And Let's Dance by David Bowie came on. And I don't even think I noticed when the song began. I, I'm a big Bowie fan, but, um, you know, whatever I, I was doing, I don't know what I was doing, but I was involved with what I was doing. This music was just, I wasn't paying attention. And then the guitar solo started. Right. And I just stopped. And I was like, Albert King is playing with David Bowie. Like, it was right. like, I was like, this is the coolest like, I love David. Right. You know, Man Who Sold the World and, you know, Ziggy Stardust and uh, Changes and... Yeah, all of it. I mean, I always loved Bo and uh, Width of a Circle and Mick Ronson and the whole thing. You know, it was great. I thought it was great, you know? Yeah. Um, and since, you know, we're talking about Bowie, the song Ashes to Ashes from Scary Monsters, like, yep. just... Like, how great is that? That's awesome. Like, that's my favorite Bowie song of all time. Because it doesn't seem real. Like, the song right. song doesn't even seem real. It's so great. I like the Black Star record. I thought it was magnificent. Unbelievable. How about the people that are playing on it? Yeah. Ben awesome. Monder. Ben Monder. Okay. Yep. yep. Yeah, he could play guitar. Right. Um, Unbelievable. The, Bowie's last record is totally phenomenal. Bowie's a freaking genius. Yeah. So, um, in that moment, I'm thinking that exact thing. He's a genius. Like, this is Albert King in a disco, new wave disco track. Right. Like, it's not an L.A. guy. It's not like a guitar solo that you're, you've been hearing on most pop records with a right. certain kind of a sound. Sure. That everybody, you know, was the sound of 1983, 82, 83. You know, it just was what it was. This was not that. Right. You know, it sounded like an amp really turned up loud in a room. And you can even hear some room, like the amp right. loud. Totally. You can still hear it. You know, like the guitar heavy breathing thing. Right. You know, like even when you aren't playing. My, you know, my favorite like, thing is just that slid note. Where he just bent, slides that note up and adds the vibra. I was like, I, you know, because that was just so something that was not current at the time. Like, who does that? But that's the kind of stuff that I was gravitated to by, you know, all the different person people I was listening to. I mean, even when Clapton would do that. I mean, there's like when he would like on that um, uh, the the Howlin' Wolf London sessions where oh, yeah, Rockin' Daddy and he slides up that note on the Strat, and you're just like, oh my god, that is glorious. And, and it oh, was like, well, and, and he does the, the chicken picking the way the song begins. He's on them, you know, in between. Then he's number two position between the bridge and the. That's one of my all. favorite. And as much as people, you know, you hear people poo-poo that record, but that's some of my favorite. Clapping. Anybody that poo-poos at Helm of London Sessions is completely insane. Right. Because <laughs> you got Charlie Watts, Bill Wyman, uh, Steve Winwood. Phil Upchurch. Band's okay. Phil Upchurch. Bill Upchurch's bass playing on Rock and Daddy 
is it almost it's like no one can do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can't be done. Right. You know, he does this. It's like, how can you fit so many freaking notes in that aren't on the beat? None of them. Right. <laughs> and that line that Clapton plays on Wang Dan it's glorious but that's I what love- i recognize when steve rated that that little slide i'm like oh my god what is this and you know, in addition to albert king you obviously have he just immediately was started this is a guy that knows the strat in a biblical way <laughs> i love that there, you know if i can i don't know if this is on it might be on it's on it's not that loud though but let's see i'll turn up a little bit When they're talking, um, this is on Hallow of London sessions, and um, and and they're going over. Um, let's see. It's like. You know, it's like, I like that where they're talking, like they're going, you hear somebody going, you know, whether it's Clapton or somebody's going, well, why don't you show it to us? Like show us. I think it's Bill Wyman talking in the background. Yeah. And Wolf's going, well, you know, and then you just come in, boom, boom, exactly, right, boom, and uh, and then somebody curses, you know, like somebody goes, oh, "Well, you should play it with us. That'd be fucking cool." Right. And then he goes, "Oh, come on." Right. You know, just because he somebody cursed. Right. But um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know. And the double stops, like on Rock and Daddy, at the end of every phrase, those big sliding double stops that are plays. Yeah, you know, like in my case, I could say, well, um, just to go back to the Stevie thing to finish the thought for a second. When oh, I found right. out that it that it wasn't Albert King, because I didn't know, I, I really was like, I, I just wasn't sure because I was with hear a lick and think. Oh, it's Albert. And then I would be like, well, no, like Albert didn't, because there's things in there Albert never does. Right, exactly. Little things, you know, like those, well, you know what I'm talking about. So I was, I was like, okay, I don't think it is Albert, but I, I was still like knocked out by the idea. I'm like, this is the coolest thing. Like to hear that sound of guitar, Albert King, in this context of this music, it was like the great, it was so cool. Yeah. So, then I find out it's some guy named Steve Ray Vaughan, and like you, I went out and um, went to my store, and I said, do you have this record by some guy named Steve Ray Vaughan? And um, <laughs> that guy smacked me. Uh, <laughs> and we dated after that. Because, um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, and, um, but not long after that, he came and played a tiny club there was a famous club, which you may have heard of, because only, maybe only because it, a lot of, uh, a handful of great live records were recorded there. A place called My Father's Place. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, did you know that Brecker Brothers live album, Heavy Metal Bebop? Yeah, that's, a, yeah, absolutely. That Curry was Brothers there. on drums. 
That was recorded at my father's place, yeah. Crazy. What's the shuffle that's on there? That's another good one. Is it East River? Yes. There's a different shuffle tune on there. Neil Jason wrote East River, I think, the bass player. Shout out to him, Neil Jason. That's a great record. So anyway, Stevie played my father's place, and I'm still friends with that guy that owned it, Epi Epstein. Everybody called him Epi, Michael Epstein. And just as very briefly, I think my father's place opened in 72 or 3 and was there for about 20 years. And, man, he had Muddy Waters. I saw Albert King there. But he also had, like, um, Burning Spear and Peter Tosh and, cool. like, the beginning of reggae, like – I really regret not going to any of those reggae shows. And he really benefited because the radio station, WPLJ in Long Island, Epi was smart. And he worked up this deal with a DJ named Dennis McNamara, who's still around, to do live shows from my father's place broadcast on LIR. And right. so, like, every Friday night, it would be live from my father's place. So it helped the club because now this radio station is – talking about my father so there are tapes you could find rory gallagher live from my father's place 1978 it's sick right completely sick unbelievable i got a rugby cannon one from there oh awesome i saw tommy bolin there ah cool and anita palenberg was sitting like two feet from me and this Ah. was 1977 (laughs) or eight and um that's when the first time i met albert king and um, anyway, so I, saw, so I saw Stevie there. The place held like maybe two, between two and 250 people packed in like a sardine. And they had just finished recording, couldn't stand the weather, but the only album out was Texas Flood. Right. And if you watch videos of the band when they're still the original trio from 84 and 85, they're still playing clubs, kind of like El Macambo was like this. Right. It's like the band is playing the music is much bigger than the confines of like the gig. Right. You know, like they're playing to a stadium and it's a room of 200 people. I mean, that's the way John McEnroe described seeing Stevie before Texas flood came out in May of 83, when he played the bottom line, this little club in New York city, he said stadium level intensity in a club that held a hundred people. Right. You know, he's like, it was just, he's, he's like, the, the place was obliterated. Right. You know. And so that was the first time I saw Stevie and he had all the amps, like the whole thing was already there that early. You know, he had his 150 watt Dumbo, 200 watt Marshall Major, two Blackface Supers, um, Vibraverb, and the Vibratone that was being driven by some other amp, whatever right. it was. And he had the plexiglass wall. Right. In front of all the amps. And so, Greg, I had three thoughts. First thought, it was the greatest live Stratocaster tone I ever heard in my life or could have dreamt of. Right. Because it was just beyond belief. The second thought was that he played guitar like somebody, like eating a sandwich or breathing. Like it was the most natural like it was the easiest thing in the world. Like this is so easy. Right. You know, 
I make the analogy if you know if you've ever watched like those Buddy Rich drum videos from the early '60s, right? Like he looks like a guy who like this is easy to do, you know, like there's nothing to it, right? For you, <laughs> um, you know, like Holsworth. I saw Holsworth once in a tiny club. He was selling the IOU record out of a box for five bucks. He had no record deal. Unbelievable. And Eddie Van Halen and David Lee Roth were there. It was before. Eddie did the deal to get him that make that record. Um, was that Metal Fatigue or not? I can't remember the, the record, the e, that Warner's record. But I don't think it was. But anyway, but I was standing one foot away from Alan. And Greg, it made it worse. Right. It made it worse. Because his, fa- his fingers would either be spread out like a foot wide or they would be as tight and it sounded the same. So, anyhow, um, to see Stevie... Oh, and then the third thing was that the, his vibrato was just, like, the most beautiful thing, one of the most beautiful things I ever heard. Right. Like this completely reliable vibrato all the time. <laughs> right, right. And uh, so, uh, and then I met him not about a year and a half later for the first interview. So... Um, so, you know, Stevie is an interesting thing because by the time I heard him, I had been playing for a long time. And the Hendrix thing, you know, there were guys my age and a little older than me that sort of resented Stevie a little bit. You know, they they already had their guitar heroes. Right. You know, Clapton and Johnny Winter and Jeff Beck. And, oh, who's this Stevie guy? And, you know, so there was some of that which I'm going to file under sour grapes. Right. Because it was just denying what to me was an absolute fact, which was the guy's brilliant, you know? And, um, you know, in a way, I think it's taken time to go by to realize how brilliant and original Stevie was. Right. I think you hear it, you can hear it better now. Whatever that means, you know, like, I think maybe because... Stevie's thing became the most inspirational thing for so many players of the last 40 years, be it John Mayer or, you know, any number of of people who've gone on, you know, uh, to have their own successes. So, um, uh, you know, uh, it was wonderful to get to know him. We played together. The first thing that happened was he came in and I plugged his guitar in and I plugged in and then we just started to jam and we did a jam down a shuffle and E for like 10 minutes. And you know, he doesn't know me. And it's like this fun little jam. And then we end and I start taking my guitar off and he goes, what are you doing? And I go, well, I have to interview you, Stevie. And he goes, oh, I thought we were just going to have fun. <laughs> and that's the kind of guy he was, you know. He well, it's just... interesting. I never, I never got to meet him, but my, um, uh, my mentor, one of my mentors in town here, was a keyboard player by the name of Junior Brantley. And Junior uh, played in a band that was legendary around here, and was also very impactful on people from all over the place because they were a, a, a legit. You know, like blues band that also put a little bit of a modern spin on it. I mean, the you know, like Stones came to town, they went and saw them. And, you know, they were buddies with all of the other kind of contemporaries of theirs at the time. And one of which is they were buddies with uh, the guys in the Thunderbirds. 
And the Thunderbirds came through town, and, um, and Junior went out to hang out with them. And at the time, uh, Tough Enough had come out. And they needed a keyboard player that knew blues but also mm-hmm. knew synthesizers. You know what I mean? And so Junior you know, checked all the boxes. So Junior en- ended up playing with the Thunderbirds. Uh, and while he was with the Thunderbirds, um, Stevie needed a keyboard player to cover. Um, uh, Reese couldn't be there for a weekend. So um, he reached out to Junior. He's like, hey, can you cover my cover this weekend? The Thunderbirds aren't playing. Can you do this? So Junior and I were talking. So Junior just happened to be in town in between tours. And Junior called me up and he's like, Gregory, I don't have any of these records. And I go, well, you can <laughs> you can borrow my records to learn the stuff, but just do me a favor and get them signed for me if you could. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, no problem. So Junior takes the records. I, at the time, it was the live record. Uh, and then uh, Soul to Soul were the records yeah. that were out at the time. So I gave him those records and Junior goes and does the gigs. And then he ends up leaving town. He ends up pivoting from being in the Thunderbirds to being in Roomful of Blues. So he, he moves out to uh, Rhode Island. Providence. Uh, anyways, I don't see Junior for years. Long story short, I, there was this concert I was booked on. It was a local kind of who's who of blues. And Junior was on the gig and Hubert Sumlin was living in town. So he was playing. And then Jim Leibin and uh, Steve Cohen, all these different guys from town here. And I was on the gig, and I was looking forward to seeing Junior, having long since forgotten about the records. So I show up, and Junior's there. He's like, Gregory, I've got your records. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, you know, remember I borrowed those records from you. <laughs> and I got them up here over there, and it's, it's uh, so weird the way that they're signed. It's like, to Greg, have a nice life, Stevie Ray Vaughan. It's pretty bizarre. That is, that's odd, yeah. And then uh, the other one's like, Greg, all the best of life, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan. And I just, I got those. And I was like, have a nice life. That is. Doesn't Stevie have the, the coolest signature? He's got the, his calligraphy is fantastic. I mean, it's just penmanship. So you might, you might appreciate this. So as soon as I saw Stevie's Stevie signature, because he signed a bunch of stuff for me, I thought, and whether it's, you know, partially my art background or who knows what. If you compare Stevie's signature and Hendrix's signature, you get a feeling for the way they play. Yeah, absolutely. So you know what I mean. Oh, absolutely. Stevie's signature was this beautiful thing that changed over time, which I learned from writing the book because I saw his signature early on. And and then at some point he sort of cultivated the signature that people know much better. Right. Which was a lot different. But it was this beautiful thing, you know, that he put. But Hendrix's signature looks like a vine that's growing out of control in 50 different directions. Yes. And I feel that they um, reflect them as people in, uh, you know, in in an interesting, accurate way. I would I would concur. You know, Stevie yeah. was into precision and beauty in a wonderful way. And Joe Satriani had a great line about Hendrix. He goes, Hendrix sounds like a guy who practiced the daylights out of everything that he played, but it's all stuff you could never practice. Right. <laughs> like he played it so well, it's like he practiced it forever, but none of it is anything you could ever practice. Right. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's true. That's such a great line, right? Can I tell you a story about opening for uh, sharing the bill with Mick Taylor? 
really quick. Oh, please do, because I've got okay. one, too. We'll squeeze this one in. All right, so it's the early 90s. Uh, no, 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 late 90s. And, you know, Mick Taylor, you know, I mean, one of the greatest guitar players that ever lived. You know, I mean, you, any of those Stones records and um, Blues Breakers records. And the male stuff, absolutely. Oh, yeah, Crusade, forget it. Yeah. And, and those uh, two weird live records, the diary. They're great. Yeah. yeah. Diary of a band. I was just yeah. listening to that like two days ago. Yeah. That, that shit is so crazy. The slide vibrato for me is the thing. The slide vibrato. And then, you know, on the song Killing Time from the album Bear Wires, he's using like a Bixby. Yeah. yeah. Because I thought it was hand vibrato or a slide like when I was younger. But then one day I was like, only it's like that vibrato at the beginning of the guitar solo of uh, while my guitar gently weeps. Right. That's not finger vibrato. Like I thought it was when I was young, but it's Bixby vibrato because it's so loose, you know, like right, nothing right, right. sounds like a Bixby vibrato, but um, anyway, so we, the bottom line I made mention of before was an incredible club in New York city. Um, I'm assuming you never had the chance to go there. Maybe you no, did. No, I have not. Know. I saw Alan Holsworth there with Tony Williams during, you know, like the Believe It tour. I saw Pat Martino there in 74, you know. Um, I don't know if you know a Joe Farrell record called Penny Arcade, which is a fantastic record. Joe Farrell, the jazz right. saxophone player. He was touring on that record at the time uh, with a guitar player named Sam Jones. Was, uh, Sam uh, Brown. Who's a great guitar player too, but um, uh, anyhow, we get hired to open for Mick Taylor for uh, two consecutive nights, two shows each night. And Mick Taylor, as some people may know, you know he he's been a little all over the place. He's had right. issues uh, with alcohol and substances and stuff. And you know he did the couple of Hendrix tours, tribute tours with uh, me. And by then he was totally fine and, and what a, a prince he was just the greatest but this was before that and he was going through some stuff whatever who knows why but it was interesting like so what we chose to do was it was a like a hot tuna i'm like I, don't, I mean i never do this but we just did it i played acoustic guitar with my electric bass player and we played blues because he's like a blues the guy's amazing so he, you know, filling up all that sound under there. Like he took lessons from Jerry Jermott. And by the time he went to Jermott, Jermott said, I, I can't, he goes, I can't teach you anything. You already know everything. <laughs> and he's like, I don't know anything. And Jermott's like, you're good. <laughs> you're fine. <laughs> so, so that's what we did. And, um, you know, we're supposed to play for like a half hour opening for Mick Taylor. Everybody's there to see Mick Taylor. Max Middleton was in his band, you know. Right. Keyboard player from Jeff Beck Group. And so, you know, we went over pretty well. It was cool. Nobody threw anything, you know, and we didn't want to overstay our welcome. And so I would we'd play like five songs and I'd look to the side because there would be a guy that would give me the cut right. sign, you know, like because I wasn't looking at a watch or anything. You know, first night, play the first set, you know, open open for the first set. It's fine. I meet Mick. I'm excited to meet him. Some of the first licks I've ever learned in my life are from Get Your Yaya's Out. Sure. And you were talking about his vibrato on Love yeah. and Vane, that slide yeah. playing on awesome. Love and Vane. Forget yeah. it. 
And then his guitar playing on everything on there on uh, right. Stray Cat Blues, you know, Sympathy like, for the Devil, Midnight Rambler, man. Midnight Rambler, exactly. Those are like the first licks I ever learned. Right. Amazing. And so I walk up to him and I go, Mick, I just want to say it's such an honor to meet you. You've been a huge guitar hero for me, you know, and it's an honor to open for you. I'm just so happy to meet you. And he just looks at me and he walks away. Right. Doesn't say anything. And I was like, that kind of sucked. Yes. And all right. So then we play the second set. Now it's the next night. We're playing the first set. You know, I have, you know, we didn't have a specific set list, but, uh, you know, you have that little clock in your head, what 35, 40 minutes is. Sure. And I look over, and there's no guy. Like the guy who's supposed to be there going, you know, right. or whatever, no guy. So I think of another song to play, look over, nobody's there. Think of another song to play. Now, you know, I don't want to get in trouble and go over. Still no guy. Finally, a guy going like this. <laughs> Rich, which means keep playing. Right. And I'm thinking, like, these people want to see Mick Taylor. Like, they've been very kind so far. Right. But I'm going to get hit with a chair. Things are going to turn here. Like, yeah. like, get out of here already. But, you know, thank God, finally, the guy gives me the cut sign. We played for like an hour, though. But we did, um, we got encores and stuff. Like, it was like, it went over well. Thank right. God. We come off, I come off, I'm like, what was that about? And they go, we don't know where Mick is. We still don't know. But you'd been out there for an hour, and we didn't want you to get a hit with a brick. So, you know, like, you know, and we're hoping he shows up. But we don't know where he is. So. <laughs> and I think the night before, he had locked his girlfriend in the dressing room, and she broke out the window. And, you know, like, this is amazing stuff. And anyhow, so he shows up eventually, and he plays great. It's like, you know, I mean, I mean, his playing was great. And he was doing the Earl Hooker thing, which he's, he's the only person besides Earl Hooker that's great at, which is to have a slide on and switch back and forth between slide and normal playing right? with absolute facility. And it sounds like the greatest. It's all great. Right. Which I tr try very hard to do that all the time because of those guys. Right. And um, anyhow, Elliot Easton was there. I remember that. He, he was, uh, I was hanging out with him. And... So now Mick is playing and a guy from the club comes up to me and he's like, Alan Pepper, the owner of the club, he goes, Alan wants to talk to you. So I'm like, all right. And I go in his office and he has this very serious look on his face. And he looks at me and he goes, encores? He goes, what is this fucking shit with encores? He goes, nobody want, he goes, no one's here to see you. They're here to see Mick Taylor. But you know what? They wanted to hear an encore from you, so I have to give you a lot of fucking credit. <laughs> <laughs> so here I thought he was breaking my balls, and he was, like, telling me. He was like, that was impressive. And I think that was it. That was it. Like, he just wanted to fuck with my mind for a second. <laughs> Encores? Because nobody wants to see you. And he goes, that was cool. All right, see you later. <laughs> anyway, Greg, uh... 
uh, you know, the, the guitar has been a wonderful and continues to be a wonderful uh, thing that brings, brought you and I together. I'm Indeed. thankful for that. Yes. And um, continues to and will forever be um, an object of uh, infinite fascination. And, um, you know, so, uh, you know, thanks for putting all your videos out and thanks for having me on this podcast. I encourage, oh, it's a pleasure. Everyone, I encourage everyone to listen to Greg's other podcasts, you know, with guys like Kenny Vaughn, who are amazing, and Red Volkert, who's amazing. Um, you know, so it's an honor, Greg. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks Paul. so much for doing it. Thanks to Wildwood and, um, and hopefully we'll actually put, we were supposed to play together uh, over the summer and do a Stevie thing um, for the 30th anniversary of his passing. Yes, indeed. Greg well, and I were supposed to in Colorado. So we will hopefully do this stuff. once the pestilence is passed. Yes, sir. Absolutely. All right, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you, Greg. Absolute pleasure. And uh, we'll see you soon, my friend. All right. All right. Take it easy. Have a good one. See you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. Special thank you to Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and the Mighty Fishman Transducers for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed yourself, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe and review so that people can get the word out that this is worth experiencing. Can you dig it? Thanks again. We'll see you soon, or you'll hear me soon.